Well, Father, we come before you just grateful that we can gather together in this warm building and just have our hearts be warmed by your teaching. I pray that as we talk about just the reality of the two kingdoms in conflict with one another, we will strengthen our conviction to look forward to the kingdom to come. I pray that this message will be encouraging, convicting, depending on the need of the heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will just uh, help this message do the work you intend it to do. In Christ's name, amen. Well, on September 3rd, 1939, France declared war on Germany. Eight months later, the German army invaded France, and it was very apparent very quickly to the French leadership that they were going to collapse. And so they agreed to an armistice, and in the armistice, they, they allowed Germany to annex some key territories. They allowed the Germans to occupy the bulk of northern France, leaving southern France to be uh, governed by an autonomous government stationed in Vichy, France. Vichy, France, as it was then known, was essentially a rump state with their own independent reign and government, which was really uh, functionally subverted to the German will and rule. Now, when this happened, one general, Charles de Gaulle, uh, left for exile in England, and while in England, he declared that the true French government resides in England at the moment. He called it Free France, and he had every intention of returning to his homeland to reestablish their rule. So you had two governments, both claiming to have legitimate authority over the French people and the French country. Vichy France was led by General Philippe Pétain, and he assumed total control of the government when he was duly elected by Parliament. He ran on a platform of work, family, and fatherland. He lived in the country, governed in the country, and was perceived by his countrymen as the legitimate ruler of France. De Gaulle, on the other hand, remained in Germany and gave a famous address called the, the Appeal of the 18th of June. He reminded France that while we lost the battle, we had not lost the war, that free France is still alive. One day, with the assistance of American industry and the British military, they will come back and reclaim the land that belongs to them, and that the current government is actually a usurping government. Uh, they are traitors to the French people. And he called on all of the French and the French military living in British exile to come to England to join him so that he might return, cross the channel, and reclaim his country. Now, the fact that you had two kingdoms, two claims of authority, two governments, basically drew a line between every French institution. Everyone had to ask, whose government do you obey, and whose side are you on? And I think the this whole dichotomy between free France and, and Vichy France has some obvious spiritual parallels, doesn't it? Right? Originally, this world was created good. It belonged to the Lord, but a usurper came in and through deception wrested power away from God. Ever since that time, the prince of power of the air rules the world, and God eventually would send his son to launch a battle and start really, the, the war to end all wars. 
Jesus would die on the cross, and in Satan's mind at the time, that was a victory for him. But Jesus did rise again, rose to heaven, and now he is waiting, much like DeCaul did in, in Britain, to come back and establish his reign forever. Jesus alludes to this in Luke 12:40 when he says, "The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. At that time when he comes, he will bring his kingdom to earth, and the kingdoms in conflict will no longer be in conflict as Jesus will rule over all. And so Jesus is preparing his people and the people of Israel for this eventual war. And he tells them in Luke 12, 49 through 59, this is our passage for today. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you. You will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus is preparing this world for the kingdom to come. He knows that there is a kingdom conflict. And much like there was a French resistance, the people in this room are part of the resistance. And to join the resistance, you basically declare war on Vichy France. And this is a very costly decision. Because when you break away from Vichy France, and let's say your family does not, that line of a civil war runs right through the family. You see, as much as we love family and we want to focus on the family, Jesus recognizes that the family, much like other institutions like the government and and even certain churches, can be a tool of Vichy France to keep the population under control of this present kingdom. Jesus is calling his disciples out of those things, and anything that pulls you away from your allegiance to the kingdom to come. And there is a cost, and it is difficult. That's why he makes really three appeals here. He tells them that you must choose a side, You must choose sensibly, and you must choose surrender. Ultimately, when you choose one kingdom, you reject the other. When you choose one kingdom, you will get the reward, but the other kingdom will give you wrath. 
There's really one or the other. You choose a side because you have two kingdoms in conflict. You can't be at peace with both. So let's look at the first point. You need to choose a side. Look at verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now this sentence is at odds with the popular perception of what I call the hippie Jesus, right? The one who loves everybody indiscriminately, has long hair, a flowing road. And he never judges anyone, but here he is saying, I wish I could cast fire on the earth. Well, what's the meaning of this fire? Well, it's the fires of judgment. John the Baptist alludes to it in Luke, 7, or Luke 3, verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This echoes some of the teachings about fire and judgment in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 1.18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for the full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Nahum 1.6, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Right, popular imagination tarnishes such religion as this as, as fire and brimstone. It doesn't capture the heart of Jesus. And yet here Jesus is saying, I wish this fire were kindled. I wish this fire were kindled. You see, when you look at biblical teaching... There is a deep connection and relationship between wrath and salvation. Did you know that? It's one of the major themes in the Bible. Consider 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that are now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Right, there will be destruction. Right, Fire destroys, but it doesn't, at least from the Lord, it doesn't destroy what is good. Right, does anybody eat chicken sushi here? Right, Get a nice raw piece of chicken and eat it. Why don't you do that? Well, I won't tell you in the pulpit why you shouldn't do that, but we all know. You cook it with fire because what does the fire do? Fire purifies the meat. It kills the enzymes, right? In a few blessed months, many of you will light your prairies on fire. And why do you do that? Because it purifies the prairie. In the same way, the fires will purify this world. Second Peter 3.13, that the fire will produce a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's wrath purifies it makes the world what it should be. And what's really interesting is many times the, the dispensing of God's wrath is the means of salvation for his people. For instance, how were people judged in the time of Noah? It was through water, right? And the water that judged the world was the means by which the ark was lifted. In the time of Moses, the plagues which judged Egypt 
or the means of breaking the Pharaoh's heart to release his people. The, the waters that parted to save Israel when they crossed the Red Sea were the means of their deliverance by destroying the Egyptian army that followed them. In the future, this world will be purged by fire. There will come a judgment where God will divide the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, and he will cleanse this world of all of his enemies and the enemies of God's people and will be saved forever to a righteous existence that has been created by fires, the fires of God's wrath. It's a pretty radical concept, isn't it? Wrath is the means of purification, deliverance, and salvation for his people. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something that Jesus actually looks forward to. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Jesus is looking forward to that future time when this world is purified by God's wrath and ready for his righteous reign. He's looking forward to it, sort of. Look at verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Before this happens, he has a baptism to be baptized with. Now, baptism literally means to plunge. And being plunged, especially when people didn't know how to swim, was a very scary event. In fact, being plunged by water was often a, um, a tale of distress. For instance, in Psalm 69, 1 through 2, Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. I sink deep in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. Being plunged is almost this form of judgment. And Jesus is saying, I have a baptism by which I need to be baptized, where he is going to actually be dipped in the pool of God's wrath. Remember that whole theme that we are, we are saved by judgment? Because of our sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we deserve divine wrath. On the cross... Jesus, who never sinned, was plunged into God's wrath. The wrath that was due to you. He was baptized in God's wrath, and then he rose from that baptism so that all those who place their faith in him can be delivered from the wrath to come. Jesus endured judgment so that you could escape judgment. You are saved through judgment. That is the judgment on Christ. He wishes that all of it were accomplished. He knows it's coming. But he had to be baptized first. Now to receive this, right, you have to align yourself with Jesus as your king and pledge to be part of the kingdom to come. And this seems like a pretty obvious choice, doesn't it? Just like it seems obvious that you should be a part of Vichy France. or I'm sorry, reject Vichy France and be a part of Free France. But what was really interesting is that when Vichy France was created, the overwhelming majority of the French aligned themselves with Vichy France. 75% of soldiers in the British Empire asked for permission to return to Vichy France to serve under the reign of Pétain. The French military residing in France had unquestioned allegiance to him. Most of them thought that de Gaulle was on a fool's errand and we want to side with the winner. They can't beat the Germans, you join them. And it's easier to submit the, to the ruler that you see 
than to the ruler that you don't. And consequently, many families thought that anyone who joined the resistance, anyone who became part of Free France were crazy. And that line of conflict went through every single family. And that is what Jesus anticipates, isn't it? There's a kingdom that is, the present order. There's a kingdom that comes. And when you, when you pledge to the kingdom to come, you reject the kingdom that is and all those who are a part of it. And Jesus makes it very clear what he's about to do. He says, do not think, verse 51, that I've come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. Right? Before there's peace, there will be a war. Before there's peace, there will be a division. When someone becomes a Christian, it's really an indictment on everybody else, isn't it? When I become a Christian, I basically say that the path you are on is the broad path that leads to destruction. When you become a Christian and you come from a family of non-Christians, you are basically saying to your family, I'm rejecting the religion that you raised me with. When you become a Christian, when your family is not a Christian, you basically tell them that I think you're going to be condemned. Right? It's a big statement, and they are very offended. And this causes conflict and division in the household. Verse 52. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Now, last week we talked about the household of God, right? And how the household was the basic institution of of Hebrew society. You had multiple generations living under one roof. Your household or your family, they determined where you lived, right? If you were from the tribe of Judah, you lived in Judah. If your parents resided in Bethlehem, that was your home. They determined where you lived. They determined who you married. They're the ones who arranged a marriage partner for you. They determined what you did. Why was Jesus a carpenter? Because Joseph was a carpenter. Your identity was wrapped up in your family. In fact, I was reading an, an article about when Americans are stressed and when we are doing something very difficult, it's very common for your typical American to imagine victory. Imagine how you can do it, and you can overcome these obstacles. Now, when the Japanese do something difficult, they imagine their family and their family rooting them on. Their identity is tied in with their family, and that's more like what we see here. This is a very deep and personal division. If you think breaking away from your family is, is difficult here, try it back then where there is this violent betrayal that they sense. They will be divided, verse 53, they will be divided, father against son and son against mother, uh, father, I'm sorry, father against son and son against father, mother-in-law, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This intergenerational family is at war because of the two kingdoms in conflict. To follow Christ to pursue the kingdom to come means rejection from the kingdom and all those people who are a part of it here. There's a cost. Years ago, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who was from a prominent Mormon family. 
he began to have some doubts about the Mormon faith, doubts about the history, doubts about what he's been told about the life of Joseph Smith and others. He began to do research and was gradually concluding that the entire religion is a fraud. Joseph Smith did actually have multiple wives. A lawyer by trade, he explained that it was like he was doing research for a Supreme Court case. And he was moving away from the Mormon faith, seeing that it wasn't true, but there was an obstacle. He was very concerned that his wife might not agree with his conclusions, and that would have a catastrophic impact on his family. You see, in the Mormon religion, they are taught that the wife is saved through her husband. That it is the husband who will call her out of the grave using her temple name and take her into the highest heaven. In fact, the marriage ceremony involves the husband and wife going into a room that is separated by a veil that is kind of surrounded by mirrors to symbolize heaven. And the husband will stick his hand through the veil, grasp his wife's hand with the patriarchal grip, as they call it, and then pull her through the veil as he calls her by her new secret temple name. And so, if you are a faithful Mormon woman married to an apostate who will never do that and doesn't believe that, the church gives you permission to divorce your husband and marry a godly, Mormon terms, widower who will give you that opportunity in the future. Right, that's some control. Now, fortunately, his wife agreed and he managed to keep his family. But that speaks of the cost, right? As much as you love your family, if they're part of Vichy France, to a certain extent, they're still aligned with the enemy. And they're going to tell you, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're turning your back on your family. And there will be second thoughts. Is this really the right thing to do? And that brings us to our next point, that you need to choose sensibly. Look at verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. Now, long before weather apps, people will look at the skies to, to judge the, the weather, right? If you wake up and you feel a, a morning breeze or strong wind coming from the south, you know it's going to be a lot hotter than it was yesterday. If you see clouds kind of building, at least here in the southwest, you know that something wicked walks this way. And so Jesus says, you guys are excellent weathermen. You know the weather. You predict the weather. You get it right. So how can you, who get this right about the weather, be so wrong about the coming kingdom? Verse 56, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Look around. Don't you see what's happening here? There is a kingdom to come, 
And I am the king of that kingdom, and yet you can't figure that out. The scriptures testify to it. If you look at Luke 4, 17-21, Jesus enters his hometown synagogue. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and I sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And I began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Those Old Testament prophecies, they all, they all point to me. That's the sign. When John the Baptist was despondent, wondering if he went to prison for nothing, and sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one to come? He says in Luke 7, 22-23, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Look at all of these signs that I'm giving you. They point to me being the Messiah of the kingdom to come. In explaining what was happening when all the disciples were casting out demons, he says in Luke eleven twenty. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? When Jesus performs an exorcism, the kingdom of God is coming upon them. There's plenty of signs. And if you can't see it, it's because you won't see it. Now, clearly, Jesus is not physically present here, but there's a number of signs. You have the sign of the resurrection, which is historically attested and true and real. You have the sign of God's revelation, but you also have the sign of creation, right? I think about Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Right? Creation points to a creator. I've used these illustrations before, but if you see three rocks stacked on top of each other, you know that didn't just happen. And that's a very simple structure. When I share the gospel, I used to get into apologetics and all these proofs, but I've kind of cut to the chase where I say, if I can prove to you that the Bible's real, that it really is the word of God, that Jesus is real, he died and rose again, and that you must turn from your sins and believe in him and have eternal life, will you convert within five minutes? And the answer is always no. I say, you know, the issue is not that you can't, but that you won't. You won't see the signs. You pretend to have an open mind, open to other ideas, but what it comes right down to it is your heart is captive to Vichy France. Your heart is captive to this world. This world has been good to you and you do not want to surrender its hold. You want to still be a part of it. You don't want to surrender, become part of the kingdom to come. And that's really what it comes down to. 
To be part of this new coming kingdom, this free France, if you will, you have to choose to surrender. Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? He's giving them another judgment to consider. Not just these, these signs out here, but certain realities in here. Verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, this is not so much a call to settle accounts with your accusers and try to make things right with other people. I mean, that is taught elsewhere, and you should do that. This is really a call to make things right with God. Now, in our justice system, if you are accused and you are guilty, the wise thing to do is to enter a plea bargain or a plea deal where you have a lesser punishment in exchange for an admission of guilt. Now, if you want to press your luck, so to speak, and say, I am not going to accept anything less than total acquittal, then you bypass the plea deal You go to court, and should you be found guilty, you will receive a harsher sentence. What Jesus is saying is, you are guilty, and you have a choice. You can make things right right now and receive mercy, or you can insist on your innocence all the way to court, where the judge will find you guilty, and when he does that, He'll call the bailiff. The bailiff will take you away to debtor's prison. And the way debtor's prison worked is you stayed there until you paid every last penny. And and the hope was through you languishing in prison, people might have sorrow for you. Your family might raise money for you. But the implication here is you will suffer to the very end. One of the greatest obstacles to people coming to Christ, and I see this in evangelism, is they don't want to admit that I'm really a bad person. I mean, I might be a little bit bad, but not as bad as him. Not as bad as Charles Manson. Not as bad as name your serial killer. It's not like I've ever killed anyone. I don't need to settle. I remember talking to a friend of mine who was on the debate team, and he told me with a straight face that if I'm guilty and I stand before God in judgment, I'm going to argue my way into heaven. I took about three steps back and looked for clouds in the air, right? (laughs) What? But he says what everybody thinks. I'm not guilty. People are more prone to judge God than to allow God to judge them. The first step to surrender is realizing I'm not going to stand in judgment over God. God's going to stand in judgment over me. And I'm in trouble. And I need to make my peace with him before it's too late. It's surrender. Right? There's a war going on. We are all born into Vichy France and become part of free France. There has to be an element of surrender. God, you're right. I'm guilty. I'm glad, Jesus, that you were baptized in God's wrath for me. I embrace that. And now I will follow you as my risen Lord, understanding that this world is to have no hold over me. 
but that you are Lord of all. And I'm going to look forward to that great day. I'm going to pray for that great day. God, may your kingdom come, because that is my kingdom. Now, if you do that in North Korea, you'll meet resistance from the government. You do this in Afghanistan, not just the government, but the community. But I think if you do that in America, if you are a first-generation Christian, right? The biggest obstacle will be what? It'll be your family. And some of you who are first-generation Christians, and I count myself in that, um, it was very difficult. It created a lot of strain. And it may not be that your family were unbelievers. It might have been lukewarm believers. And so this is a very tricky, difficult situation. So how do you navigate this? Well, I, I've got three, three words. One, for you first-generation Christians, and then I think the other two for Christian parents and how do you minister to your own children so that they serve Christ more than you. Now, for the first-generation Christians, I'd say this. Fear God and not your family. Right? It's very easy to fear your family because we're supposed to, right? If you cross your mom when you're three years old, in our family, you got a trip to the red bathroom. It's red for a purpose. And for many... Children are a source of joy, of comfort, and even security, right? Many have a natural default to want to idolize their kids, see them as a source of happiness and a source of security. And when the children pull away from them, if they do something like reject the religion you taught them, or the non-religion you taught them, when they begin to be closer to this group of people at church than you, you can understand why parents in that situation or siblings in that situation will start to fight to reclaim what they believe rightfully belongs to you, to them. There'll be guilt, shame, What kind of Christian are you if it teaches you to hate our family? There will be a deep desire for them to try to steer you away from greater church commitment. It will be met with frustration, anger, and shame. So what do you do? Well, the easiest thing for us to do would be to just cut it off, right? But mixed in with all of these teachings about the family, Jesus also calls the Pharisees to account because they failed to honor their parents. They would not provide for their parents. Jesus on the cross, one of his last acts of mercy was to arrange for the care of his mother. And interestingly, he had John care for his mother, not his brothers, James and Jude. There is a way that we need to love our parents. The command to honor your parents still stands. But this is how you do it. Okay, this is very important. You honor your parents on God's terms and not theirs. See the difference? You honor your parents on God's terms and not their terms. 
If they were to say, if you loved me, you will do this. If you loved me, you wouldn't go to church as much. If you loved me, you'd spend more time with me. If you, if you loved me, you, you, you wouldn't go overseas as a missionary. If you loved me, that is a way of controlling you. And you can't measure your faithfulness to God's commands to honor your parents by their happiness with the way you're doing so. Is God happy with the way you're honoring your parents? Is he pleased with it? The best thing you can do for your family is to love Jesus more than them. It's to show that following Jesus is worth it, it's worth suffering. It makes you more loving, more kind, more compassionate, even if they don't see it that way. Ultimately, your parents are not the judge of your behavior. When you rip away an idol from anyone, it will be met with rage. Be aware of that, but still resolve to love them on God's terms. Now, if you are not a first-generation Christian, you grew up in a Christian home and you have a Christian family, I just want to encourage you to be, to be very aware of this painful struggle that a lot of first-generation Christians have. They will be shamed. It will feel a distance from their family. Many times the holidays will be super exhausting for them. And that is why we need to open our homes and our hearts to make sure that we give them the refreshment of being part of a spiritual family, to reinforce their faith, and to encourage them as they engage in a very difficult mission field. Now, what about you who, who have children and you are believers? I want to encourage you to help your children <clears throat> be more attached to Christ than to you. It can be very easy when you pour your life into raising your children to allow your love for your children to stymie God's call and plan for their lives. And I, I've seen this quite frequently when, let's say, children pursue a call to go into full-time ministry uh, especially the mission field, something that will take their children away. I'm not sure if you've heard the name, but Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary, first person born on American soil to go overseas. And he fell in love with a young lady by the name of Nancy Hazeltine, and he asked her father, for permission to marry his daughter. And this is the letter that he wrote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and the glory of God. Can he consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamation of the praise which will redound to her Savior from the heathens? Through her me save through her means from eternal woe and despair. Now there would be a temptation to say, you know what, Nancy? There's a lot of heathens here. 
I mean, this guy, he's a dreamer. No one's ever done this before. But to his credit, he deferred to his daughter, and his daughter accepted. And yes, she did die overseas. And he never saw her again. I mean, would you rejoice if your parents told you that, would you rejoice if your children told you, I want to go overseas? Would you rejoice? You want to raise your children to have a greater attachment to the Lord than to you. Thirdly, don't allow your commitment to your family to excuse your obedience to the Lord. Sometimes doing the right thing can make your family's situation way more difficult. Keeping your integrity at work may cast you your job, and that will create what for your family? More suffering. Sometimes doing the right thing will cause your family to suffer, and people will want to say it's your fault. Now, many of you who know me know that one of my favorite books is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Super influential in my life. John Bunyan was a Baptist pastor in England who wrote an allegory of the Christian life, and he did most of it while he was in prison. He was a Baptist and not an Anglican, and so he was forbidden from preaching the gospel, put in prison, until he agreed not to preach the message as he saw fit. And what made this extra difficult is his family was super poor. They're already impoverished. He even had a blind daughter. While imprisoned, he wrote the following from his cell. The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in the place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I would have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer in my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, though I, I must venture all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you, of I saw in this condition, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet, though I, I must do it, and I must do it. He knew that being faithful to the Lord, even though his family paid the cost, was the most loving thing that he could do for his family. He loved Jesus Christ more than them. So while it is true that the kingdoms in conflict will create conflict with your family, the most loving thing you can do for your family, contrary to what they tell you, is to love Jesus more than your family. Not to hate your family, but to love Jesus more. And just understand that and this call to follow Christ, to identify with the kingdom to come, will not be understood by this world. Just like the call to follow free France and join the resistance at the dawn of the existence of Vichy France was seen as a fool's errand. They were vindicated in history, weren't they? And someday our vindication will come too, when the Son of Man appears at an hour we do not expect. But in the meantime, there's a call for absolute surrender. 
And even though you guys are committed to the point that you're traveling through, not just chilly weather, like bitter cold weather to be here, there still might be a heart that is unsurrendered. And my encouragement to you is to count the cost and to surrender your life to the Lord. And from this point on, make the kingdom to come the kingdom that you own. Someday there will be an end to this kingdom conflict and it will be the kingdom to come that will put an end to it and Christ will reign forever as the king of this world and beyond. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for the hope of the coming of Christ. And Lord, we know that um, the hostility of this world towards us is really hostility towards you as Satan does not want to relinquish this world without a fight. But I pray for the souls here that you might move them in faith to recognize the signs, to recognize their guilt, to recognize their need to surrender and that they will do so. We thank you for those who are watching us online. We pray that this message will stir their hearts as well and that we as a church will be a surrendered church, an outpost for your kingdom, a people of the resistance, looking forward to the great victory in the future. May it happen soon. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing one.